Welcome to Growing You, part of LaGrave CRC's adult education program. Before we begin, one note. The next two sessions will not be recorded due to presenter request. In this session, we will look at the foundation that the Christian Reformed Church set forth in 1970. We will address how that report set the biblical foundation for our discussion. We will also look at the 2002 report on pastoral care, followed by the impact of this topic on our youth, and we will wrap up with the 2016 report and how LaGrave is addressing this topic. You're listening to Growing With One Another, Human Sexuality Report in Context. All right. Um, welcome, everyone, to uh, four weeks for Growing You, where we will be talking about growing with one another, uh, focusing on uh, Human Sexuality Report, and uh, today we're putting that in a LaGrave context. Uh, but before we begin, or as we begin, uh, I'd like to open with prayer. And I'm going to open with prayer with a, with a prayer that's included in the Human Sexuality Report. So if you've read that report, you've seen that there's a, a prayer right at the beginning. And I'm going, I won't pray the entire prayer. It's uh, extensive. It's a great example of how to pray about this topic, I think. And uh, I just will use a section to uh, open our time in prayer. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Light of the world, teach us to walk from darkness into the light of communion with each other and with you. Take away our shame as you show us how to live in honesty and in mutual dependence. Enable us to unite truth and grace together once again. In Christ, amen. All right, um, again, welcome uh, to this session. So this is, uh, we'll be fairly straightforward here. Uh, I will open with uh, just setting the table. What's our agenda? Why are we talking about this? Move over to Peter, who will remind us of that 1973 report, some of the biblical and some of the key uh, components of that report. Christy is going to talk with us about that 2002 report, and focus, which focuses on pastoral care. Uh, Bob will uh, talk about how this topic impacts our youth and how that ministry takes place here at LaGrave. And then I'll touch, if with the time left, on that 2016 report and then remind and then set up how we are going to address this here at our church. So um, when this is a question we get quite often when we announce this was happening, well, what's, what's the point? Why are we talking about this? So we wanted to be clear about some things up front. We're not here, we're not here to change the church's view on this issue. Uh, church has been uh, addressing this since 1973. That's not our goal with this with uh, what we're doing here today. We're not here promoting same-sex marriage. Uh, we're not here because we are eager to fit in with culture. This is what we are trying to do. What we're trying to do is to start a conversation uh, in our church. Uh, in some ways, I say start a conversation. In many ways, we're continuing a conversation. Those of you who've been here a while, you remember that we had a similar series back in 2017. And so 
those of you who are new are joining a conversation that's been going on for some time at our church. Uh, we want to remind you what the church teaches, and you'll see later why that is important, how necessary that is. And then uh, we're trying to create a hospitable, pastorally caring environment where young, a young person who is working through these topics, families, uh, will find a safe and compassionate uh, place to talk. Why do we need to talk about this? Uh, this coming summer, 2022, the Synod of the Christian Reformed Church will be discussing the Human Sexuality Report that's been worked on uh, since 2016. So uh, that's coming, and so it's an important topic for us to talk about. The council uh, has begun talking about it and will continue to talk about it. We think silence is dangerous uh, because if we're not talking about it, it catches us unaware. Church needs to have a voice in this conversation. And, and again, just to reemphasize our young people. Our young people are talking about this. They're engaging with it. They know folks who are LGBTQ in their schools and places where they work. And uh, uh, us grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles and parents, we need to know how to um, speak with them and how to engage them meaningfully. Um, and then, as you'll see, many members don't know really what our church's stance is. And with that, I'll pass it over to you, Peter. So my role is to remind you all where we've been as we approach um, Synod 2022, which um, will, will be a, conf I mean, this issue is co a conflicted issue and, and raises passions among people to a high level. Uh, I know that at the, uh, Many of you probably read that the Reformed Church of America is um, almost splitting over this issue right now. So we're trying to create a context where we can have a, a decent, well-informed discussion. A part of knowing where you are is to know where you've been, and so that's my role with respect to 1973. So Mike, why don't you hit the next slide, or somebody. All right, I wanna, as I go through this, I'm gonna have quotes from the 1973 report, already 48 years old, up there, and they will use terms that are now considered uh, at least antiquated, and some people will find offensive in society. I'm just, I'm not gonna try to change all those, I'm just telling you that they use terms like uh, homosexual and homosexualism, which are not sort of au courant, so just don't take offense at that. All right, here's some, this report uh, proceeds with some background assumptions. Uh, um, and it's, those are all appear within the report itself. One of them is sexual attraction is not polar. It falls along a spectrum. And that's a quote from the 1973 report. Uh, the distinction between the two conditions of heterosexuality and homosexuality is not clear cut. Some persons are completely heterosexual, never having homosexual feelings, while others are exclusively homosexual, feeling no attraction to the opposite sex but there are varying degrees of both conditions in many adults. So that's one of the assumptions. Assumption two, sexuality is not about just about sex, about the physical sexual act. Sexuality is about whole person connection. Sex is in service of relationship, okay? We'll go to the next one. I'm not gonna read every quote. Uh, already in, in, in 73, this was more contested. This is more accepted, I think, generally today that sexual attraction, same-sex attraction, is not chosen. You sort of just awaken to it. Um, oh, go back. I want to read a little bit of that. 
It is important to understand that homosexuality is not the result of any conscious choice or decision on the part of the person to be homosexual, just as heterosexual person does not become heterosexual because a certain age he determines to be so. Most of us who are sort of binary heterosexual, we did not choose that. We woke up one morning and found ourselves deeply interested in the opposite sex, right? Um, that was not a choice, it was an awakening. And that's what this report contends back in 73 already. Okay, next slide. Though same-sex attraction is not chosen, it is still a disordered condition. Just because you don't choose it doesn't mean it's not disordered or the result of sin. Oh, go back. I want to read that one. Sorry, I got to tell you. In the light of the created order, heterosexuality is the pattern of human existence. Homosexuality, therefore, must be seen as a disordered condition. Okay, so those are the four sort of background assumptions that undergird the report. And now we're going to get into the biblical portion. And, boy, I wish I could stand up. I've got so many mics on. I have three mics on right now, which is a new record for me. <laughs> okay, uh, but biblical passages, Genesis 2. This is the foundation of, same set, of, of marriage, the, um, the origi origin of it in Genesis. And the report concludes, in the light of the created order, heterosexuality is a pattern for human existence. Marriage is between a man and a woman, says 1973. That's their interpretation of Genesis 2. Okay, next slide. Genesis 19 is another passage that's important in the discussion of this issue. That's Sodom and Gomorrah because there is a same-sex rape in that scene or an attempted one. Okay. Um, the report concludes, and this is pretty typical amongst most interpreters these days, as an isolated incident, we cannot conclude, however, that homosexualism is here condemned. The evil that is the men of Sodom are planning with Lot's guests was a sexual assault and violence. So it's, it's more the violence and the rape that's at issue in that text than it is about the same sex, okay? Next passage. Leviticus, super, super important in this discussion. There are two texts in Leviticus. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. In Leviticus 20, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable there to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Um, these passages clearly forbid sexual intercourse between males. The difficulty that confronts us in this passage is to the extent to which they're normative for us. Like, so, I mean, we, I think you all know Leviticus is difficult. There's lots of stuff in Leviticus that doesn't apply to us anymore as New Testament people. Uh, go to the next one. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Uh, many of you are in violation of that as we speak. <laughs> Do not cut the hair at the sides of your heads or clip off the edge of your beard. Shame on all of you. Okay. Well, this is hard, but that doesn't mean that Leviticus doesn't apply anymore. And so what the church has done, and this has been fairly uh, well established for a long time in the Reformed tradition, there are three kinds of laws, ceremonial, civil, and ethical. Civil applies to, you know, just governmental rules that apply to interrelations between people. Ceremonial is cultic relations, and ethical are, are things that have to do with behavior. And what we've said is ceremonial and civil no longer apply, but ethical does. And so the report concludes, next slide. In conclusion, while we grant that a cultic 
interpretation may be given to 18, 21 to 23, to do so to the exclusion of the ethical aspects of the prohibition appears to us unwarranted. We therefore hold that 1821 forbids homosexualism and the same is true of 2013. There were cultic homosexual practices, same-sex practices in those days. What the report says is while that's true, that still doesn't mean it's not an ethical instruction and therefore it's still binding, okay? Next text. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, uh, and this time, there's a long list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, which includes idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, arson koitai and malakoi, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Report's conclusion. From this text, it is clear Paul considered homosexualism as seriously wicked, though no more sinful than the others mentioned on this list. Already acknowledging sometimes, not always, but sometimes there's a tendency to raise sexual sins, especially high. Okay. Next. Most important text on this issue, also the most difficult and most hotly debated, Romans 1. Because of this, that's their idolatry of humankind, God gave them, human beings, over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones in the same way the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. The two hot questions when you're interpreting this passage are what does Paul mean by natural and what shameful acts does he have in mind? Those are the two questions. People go two ways with natural. Is it natural in the sense that this is the way God created things in the created order? The way God meant things to be sort of objectively out there? Or when Paul talks about natural, is he talking about what naturally, what the natural feeling of the individual? What is the individual naturally inclined to? So people take that tack will say um, natural relations Paul's speaking about heterosexual people who choose to go the other way. He's not talking about people who are naturally same-sex attracted, okay? Uh, whereas others say no. Paul's clearly talking about the creation order, okay? So that, that's the, those are the two sides. Shameful acts, again, in those days there were cultic uh, same-sex practices, when Paul's talking about shameful acts, is he thinking about those cultic same-sex practices, or is he thinking about all incidences of this kind of behavior? Report concludes, and obviously I can't go into all the exegesis and all the details. So, um, Obviously, Paul regards homosexualism, as he knew it, as moral perversion in the most intimate human relationships. He may have had in mind depraved cultic practices of the pagan world, but we conclude that the New Testament passages, which make reference to homosexual behavior are in harmony with the judgment of the Old Testament. So the shameful acts, the report goes with more general incidences, and natural means not, it's not about natural inclination, it's about natural order as God created it. That's what 73 says. Next text. Oh, see, look at that, I explained that already. Next, you can skip that. 
So then the, at the end of, uh, synodical reports always do a lot of exegesis. They describe the problem. They talk about the history of the problem. They do ex biblical exegesis. Uh, and then they work themselves out into recommendations and conclusions. Now we're going to talk about four conclusions. The church is guilty. Already in, in 73, the finger was pointed at the church saying, you're not doing as well with this as you should. And I'm going to read this. Unfortunately, the homosexual person has not experienced this kind of love and acceptance of his person in either the church or society. It has been said that the homosexual has been far more sinned against than he has sinned. In the light of our understanding of homosexuality today, Christians bear a great burden of guilt relative to such persons. Uh, there was no context in which redemption, restoration, figuring out was possible, said the report. Next one. Same-sex attraction, attraction, is not a sin. Acting on that attraction is. I think most of us know that distinction. Super important in the report. Okay? The church should be a place where LGBT people can be open about who they are. In order to live a life of chastity and obedience to God's will, the homosexual needs the loving support and encouragement of the church. Okay, and then finally, the church needs to talk about these things. The pastor is also in a position to instruct his congregation in appropriate ways about homosexuality and to alert members and office holders to their responsibility they bear to our homosexuals in their fellowship. He can encourage understanding and compassion and dispel the prejudices under which they suffer. Okay? So there you have it, assumptions, the way they interpreted the biblical passages, and then conclusions. The new report has even more exegesis. Obviously, in the last 48 years, there's been new arguments and new challenges and, and new um, research. Uh, so you know, there, when we finally get around to talking about the report itself, we'll be in touch with those. But, but even those new ones are very much flowing out of what you just heard today. So it's important that we all be conversant with these things. Okay, thanks. So then in 2002, um, a new report came before the Christian Reformed Church because there was a sense that we hadn't done, we had not lived up to 1973 in terms of creating a climate and a culture and a space for people who loved Jesus and experienced same-sex attraction could be honest about um, how they experience the world, who they are, uh, and how they are, are trying to walk faithfully and openly. Um, so the, the 2002 study committee had a mandate to give direction about um, the pastoral care of members who are homosexual in a manner consistent with the decisions of 1973. So they did not look again at the exegesis that Peter just talked about. They said, we take that and we're, we're going forward into how within that understanding can we make our churches places where people feel accepted. Um, so we can do better was kind of the under, undergirding uh, assumption there. Um, some, of the, some of the things that the, church, the study committee said, um, I'll just read to you directly from the report. That study committee said, we heard wonderful stories from some homosexual persons about how other members of the church had supported them, how they had encouraged them, how they had helped them to overcome shame, how they had admonished them when they needed that. However, more commonly, we heard stories of the church's silence and lack of ministry, stories that indicate an unwillingness on the part of the church to talk with people about their same-sex attraction and spiritual struggles. So in terms of um, 
of creating that kind of a church culture. Uh, the study committee said compassion was essential and looked to Jesus as a model for that, of seeing people before their struggles or their um, seeing them as more than the sum of, of their constituent parts and failures and struggles. So um, remembering, Peter mentioned this too, that this is not just a subject or an issue or a topic, but something that involves a, a person's whole fabric of existence. So because that's so complex, um, it's important to remember it doesn't take total understanding for us to show each other love and compassion. We can have strong convictions and still be kind and reverent and respectful. And um, each person, this was another important piece of what that study committee said, each person has distinctions um, to, to reduce someone to, to just their uh, same-sex attraction does not take into account how different how, other ways in which we may hold things in common. So um, they, the study committee also said, related to that, they said this, when considering a specific ministry to people who are homosexual, we should remember that there's no um, stereotypical person out there known as the homosexual person. Same-sex attraction does not define the personality, the morality, the lifestyle, occupation, family history of that whole person. They are as different from each other as heterosexual persons are. Some are moral, others are not. Some are caring, loving people who love the Lord with all of their hearts and souls and minds. Others are not. Um, the report also addressed a, some common uh, common concerns for the church to work on addressing. I'm going to talk only about two of them right now. One thing that people who are homosexual, who are Christian, face is a sense of shame. And shame has to do with um, what we believe ourselves to be, that we are unpardonable. We are just as depraved as depraved could be, that we are just awful, and how, how great our sin and misery, and how dare we rise, raise our eyes to look for the mercy of Jesus Christ. So that sense of shame can color every, every part of someone's life, and that's different from guilt, where we feel like we've done something wrong, and we're not, we're not totally warped and as bad as we could be, but we've done something wrong that needs forgiving. So the shame for people who are homosexual is an undeserved shame. Um, we heard already in 1973 there was a, a conviction about uh, the sense that this was not a chosen uh, path in life. And so there was an undeserved feeling of shame for people. Um, and it could keep them from engaging in the very community that they needed so much to be able to walk together with other people who know and love them and who can support them in their, in their lives. Um, so getting into that, a, the, a need for identity and community. The Church of Jesus has the antidote to that shame, that Jesus sees us just as we are and loves us and invites us into fellowship with him, and that God is gathering people um, in that new identity, that identity that's given to them by God through Jesus Christ. So neither who we are, our sense of shame, nor our guilt, our, uh, what we've done, alienates us from the love of God and Jesus. And so all of us in this family of God, we all share our fallenness. We all share acceptance through Jesus Christ that covers over our shame and our guilt. And we all participate in our call to a life of walking with God in holiness. So some takeaways for churches. 
work hard, churches, the report said, to create hospitable environments. Talk about the church as the family of God, um, gathered from a wide variety of places, some single, some married, some young, some old, some black, some white, uh, some immigrant, some uh, citizen, all, all across. Model and encourage intimate non-sexual relationships with people of the same gender and opposite gender. Encourage people beyond their biological families to develop brother-sister in Christ relationships. Encourage people to be deep, intimate friends in appropriate ways um, because that, that's a cure for all of our loneliness, um, to know each other as loved by God and loved by each other. Provide an environment for confession in different settings. So in public worship, we do this every week. Um, so that's one place that we do it, but also in places where the people who know you best and love you still can hear um, the challenges and the sins and the failures and the joys. Um, pastors and church leaders, how are we doing on time? We're doing okay? Yep. All right. So for pastors and church leaders, the, the report said, be available to meet with people who are same-sex oriented family members and friends who are looking for guidance and companionship on this, on this walk together. Um, welcome those who are same-sex oriented into the faith community. Seek out people on the margins. Have your eyes alert, pastors and church leaders, for people who are on the edges. Strive to listen first. Um, learn about homosexuality, which is something we have to keep doing so that our guidance and our teaching can be well-informed. Have recommendations for support groups and counselors ready um, for folks as they come forward to ask. And establish groups within our church where individuals who are same-sex oriented or their family members can meet together and, and share, share the journey. For parents, this was advice for parents of young people who are uncovering questions about their sexuality. What, what should parents do? Well, one thing, um, this was adapted from a Catholic report and, and included in our um, Christian Reform 2002 report. One thing that that report said first was accept and love yourselves as parents in order to accept and love your child. Don't blame yourselves. This is not someone's fault. You haven't done something as a parent that has resulted in this challenge in the life of your child. Do everything that you can to demonstrate love for your child. Keep walking with them. Accept their sexual orientation and um, acceptance of their sexual orientation does not have to include approving of all of their behavioral choices to continue to love. Urge your son or daughter to remain connected to the faith community. Recommend um, that they find a spiritual director or someone who will walk with them and guide and, guide and pray for them as they pursue a virtuous life. Seek help yourself as you need it, as this is a challenging um, aspect of, of your parenting season. Reach out in love and service um, to other parents that might be walking in the same similar shoes. And um, recall that you're responsible for yourself and your child at some point takes responsibility for his or herself. And put your faith completely in God who is more powerful and more compassionate and more forgiving than any of us can be. Okay, I, I get the, the privilege actually to talk about, not about a report, um, not about what Synod said and what the church is supposed to do. I can talk about what we're actually doing. And um, 
what, what happens with the uh, younger people of this church that I have the privilege of working with, especially those in middle school, high school, and college age. So when, when I'm talking, that's the age group that I'm talking about in particular. And I think it's vitally important that we as Christians follow a lot of the advice that's given on the slides and that we have um, seen on those slides about how we can have a discussion, a challenging discussion with somebody who thinks different than we do, without it tearing us apart, without it causing us to split wide open, as they say. And one of the ways that we work with that and, and try to achieve that goal in our youth ministry is to listen well. Uh, we want to hear what the young people have to say and what's on their minds. And then how do we respond once we hear what's on their minds? Especially if we d might not agree with what comment they're making or it's different than we've heard before. Um, we're to follow God's example, and that example is to love. To love each teenager that comes through the door um, unconditionally, which is hard sometimes. And so our goal in that setting is to um, have a safe place where our students can come and talk about whatever issue is on their mind, whatever issue they're facing right now, Whatever issue they're living with, whether it's easy, whether it's hard, um, it's not off limits. And here's just some of the ideas and conversations we've had. We've talked about how do you relate to your parents? Uh, how do you relate when your parent, um, first thing out of their mouth is, well, when I was your age. <laughs> That's not a great way to start a discussion, by the way. Um, because you were their age chronologically, but you were never living in the age in which they're living right now with social media, with everything else that's going on, especially somebody who's my age. Um, if I say that, um, no, that's not a good thing. Uh, we deal with peer pressure. We deal with racism. We deal with uh, relating to people who are different than we are, who have a different color of skin, uh, who think differently. Um, we deal with dating, we deal with premarital sex, we deal with the LGBTQ question, which we're dealing with now as a church. And sometimes we do really well in this, and I very honestly will have to say sometimes we don't do very well. Um, they're not always the best discussions, although we strive to have it. But it's important that the conversations take place. And it's important for us to say we don't have all the answers to these questions. There might have to be someone else that you go to and talk to and we give them advice as to who those persons might be because um, we don't know. We don't have all those and it's okay to say that. But we do our best to make sure that they know that they're loved and that they're welcome. And we know that our youth are dealing with this issue, especially with this issue. And they want to have conversations about them, although at this point, many of them are saying, we've had all the conversations we want. We talk about this all the time. Our school talks about it, our parents talk about it, the church talks about it. Let's just stop talking about it and let's just be accepting of students, of people. Um, now, theologically, we're not getting into those Bible texts at the moment, but that's where some of the students are. 
And so there's very few youth, if any, who do not know an LGBTQ person or walk with them in the halls of their school. The questions that they have are, how do we relate to our classmates? How do we accept them for who they are? Because after all, they are people made in God's image, right? Good reminders, good questions. Something that we need to think about as we have those discussions. And they're going to have the discussion, so in my mind, what better place to have them than at a church? Than in a faith setting, in a place where um, we can love them unconditionally and spread God's love to them unconditionally. We need to do it because they're going to go somewhere. Where do they go? To where whoever they trust. Is that going to be Google? Is that going to be their parents? And I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But one of the key elements is how do you react when someone starts the conversation? Do you roll your eyes? Do you immediately say what I just said before? Well, when I was your age, we didn't even talk about these things. Does your body language put you at some kind of a defensive posture immediately? What is that initial conversation like? And so I've had students who come to me and say, I can't talk to my parents about it. I can't. Because I know how they're going to react. And almost every time when they say that, the reaction in their mind is not going to be positive. It's going to be some kind of advice that immediately is going to come out of their mouth. And um, that's kind of sad. But that is how it is, right? So most of the people that I've talked to and who've talked to me about human sexuality issue, the LGBT, some from this church, most of them have walked away from the church. There are very few of them left here in this congregation who've come out or uh, other congregations as well. And they've walked away from their faith because they say, all I get is rejection and I don't seem to be accepted at all. I'm different. And people in church don't know what to do with different. For me, that's a sad commentary. But it's true. That's not the way it should be. And the reports that we just went through say that same thing. How can the church be a place where our students, where our young people feel accepted? And I find that I can learn so much from our youth because they face, they face situations that I've never had to face. And so I can put myself or try to put myself into their shoes. They walk halls with students all the time who are LGBTQ. I might have. I don't know. If so, it was never very clear. It's clear now. They teach me when they say, that person's created in God's image too, just like me, just like you. We don't have to agree with everything young people say or do, but that doesn't mean that we should treat them differently than we treat our friends. That's a good lesson to learn. 
So our young people are going to have questions. They're going to ask them, who will they turn to? And it's my prayer that they will turn to someone that they trust here in church rather than Google. One last thought. In an ideal world, how would you envision LaGrave coming alongside of our teenagers who are wrestling with the questions about sexual orientation or who are asking those questions for themselves or for their friends? All right, thank you, Bob. I really, for Peter and Christy's sake, to be able to get out on time, we would like to finish by 10.40, which is a little faster. That clock back there is slow. I'm going on the clock here on the computer, which puts us at 10.37, so a sprint to the end. Um, Synod 2016, the report that came at that time, of course, you may recall, was about same-sex marriage. Uh, uh, just highlighting a couple things from that, there was... Um, uh, the result of that discussion at Synod was to adopt the minority report in this case, which uh, prohibited office bearers from uh, pastors from performing same-sex uh, marriages and urged, recommended that office bearers even not show up at these events because of uh, what that looks like. So, the, so that gives you a sense of the tone of that report that was adopted. Second, it touched on the theme that I think you're hearing us talk about today, and that is belonging, membership. What does it look like? Is there a place for membership for people who are same-sex attracted? And, um, and what I, as I was reflecting on it and where we are currently with the 2022 report, that's, or that's coming in 2022, uh, was an emphasis then in, um, in the 2016 report of the lack of discipleship, the lack of discipleship taking place in the congregation, in the denomination. There was a survey, uh, so there was a call for discipleship in that report, which is fleshed out in this uh, report that's coming to Synod. So um, what uh, the stats that were gathered from the denomination to see where we, we are, what's the snapshot of where the denomination is? There was a, there's a, uh, a difference in how ministers understand and try and engage past reports and the church membership. I think here you'll see uh, uh, CRC ministers, by and large, are pretty familiar with that 1973 report. Uh, Ministers are seeking to love and care for members of their congregation. I think that was uh, shown. And then uh, church members are not quite as well uh, versed in understanding what past reports are, the 73-2002 in this case. Um, a little bit behind uh, where the ministers are, which means... Now that you all have been in this session, you're already ahead of, of so many folks in the denomination, so keep up the good work. Um, and then uh, finally, what is the atmosphere of discipleship, of welcome, of pastoral care and hospitality? Fairly cold. While 78% of pastors are, say that we're trying to love and care for uh, church members, as Bob uh, did such a good job of reminding us of 
that uh, the f people are not finding the church to be all that hospitable. And so at the end of 2016, and I think this, this is why 2016 led to the report that's coming out now, um, reminded us that navigating these challenges requires a lot of work, requires talking with one another, requires prayer, requires trying to practice this one anotherness that we've been preaching about, uh, you know, these last few weeks that's been part of our growing youth sessions this fall. What does it look like uh, to be uh, encouraging and admonishing uh, one another and all the one another's? And so here's what our plan is. We will, we have currently three challenging conversations, small group happening in this church. We're using the challenging conversations. That's a title of a small group curriculum produced by our pastor church resources, which allows church members to do a deep dive in reading the report and discussing the report uh, with, with each other. So we have three of those groups taking place as we speak. We're on week three uh, of six weeks, uh, and that's going really well. Some really good uh, conversations are happening. Second, uh, we have the four Growing You sessions. We have this week, next week, and the following week, we, have, um, we will be uh, led by representatives from the Colossian Forum. Colossian Forum produces small group material on this topic, and we've been using that since the last time we had this conversation. Since 2017, we've been using that in small groups. So they will come. And then week four, uh, Dr. Kathy Smith, who is church polity professor at Calvin Seminary, and myself, we will have a uh, discussion about one particular section of the report, and that is the status confessionis, or the confessional status portion of that report. What does that uh, mean for the church, particularly office bearers and, and folks who signed the covenant for office bearers in the church. Uh, and then um, we look forward to a mutual encouragement session with all of council. So this is a way for council to hit pause on sort of the daily business of the church and take a 30,000 foot look at uh, topics that are important to our congregation. So all of this is kind of helping council members hear from you as a church, as a congregation as well. With that, um, I would like to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, for, um, thank you for giving us Christian practices of love and grace, of, of telling the truth and uh, seeking forgiveness and confession so that together we can bear witness to the work of your spirit, not only in our own hearts, but in the life of our congregation as well. As we lean into a topic that has been difficult for the church for so many years, help us to practice loving one another so that the world will see that the church is a light. In Christ we pray. Amen. A reminder that the next two sessions will not be recorded due to presenter request. We recommend that you join us in person if you are able.